Today I want to talk about live. What does it mean to be a Christian? What is Christian life all about? And to do this, I, I was thinking through my own personal history to some degree. And I was thinking about, you know, I was raised in an Assembly of God church. Everybody I knew. You know how it is when you, you're raised in a certain group. That's what you know. And then we kind of think everybody's like us, right? And then as you start to get a little older, you realize not everybody's the same. Not everybody worships Jesus the same. For me, this started early. I, my, my dad was in the Navy. We moved to the Philippines when I was in first grade. So I was six, I guess. I would have been six. And we moved there. And when we first moved there, we lived off base on a compound that was all military families. They were all Navy families in there. And, uh, but we all lived in this compound. And when I say compound, I mean it was, it was like a cul-de-sac, but it had brick walls all the way around it. And it was protected from... From just, you know, people robbing or whatever. And it was like our own little neighborhood is what it was. And in there, there was a family whose kids matched up roughly with my sister and me. And we were good friends. And I will, I will always remember them because they had just odd names. There's Billy. That's not so odd. He was a little older than me. And then Chipper was my age. <laughs> I have no idea what his real name was. But we all, his name was Chipper. And then their little sister's name was Bunny. Which I just thought was cute because she was a cute little bunny-like girl. But Okay, so Chipper was my friend, but Billy was a little bit older. So here's what would happen. On Sundays, we would always get home from church, and we would go run and find them because we wanted to play. Right? And Billy was always doing something at home, and he, wasn't, he, he wouldn't come out and play for a while. So I was curious one day, where's Billy? And Chipper said, oh, he's in the house. You can go in. He's... He's in there, he's doing mass. That's what he said. I didn't know what that was. Well, they were a Catholic family. And what Billy did was he reenacted what his church service mass, Catholic mass had been like the day, that, that day before church, when they came home from church. So I remember the first time I went in there and Billy, right away I was, hey, what are you doing? He's like, be quiet, you gotta be quiet in here. And he had set up in, in kind of their little, they had this little like a, I think we would look at it as a mud room. It was like this entryway room. And what he had set up, he had a box that he would put, and he'd put this cloth over it, and it would be like the altar. And then he had some candlesticks. There was no candles, you know. They were too little to be lighting candles. But he had candlesticks. And then he had, some, he had some little benches he had put up. And he said, you can sit there and be quiet. My church wasn't like that. We didn't go sit and be quiet. I mean, we sang songs. We, we moved around. We had exciting services. But for him, this was his experience. And then he went around and he did all these things and he mumbled. And I said, what are you saying? And he goes, I'm doing mass. Be quiet. That's all I knew. Now, I don't know what he knew about Jesus, really. I mean, we were six. But when I saw that, I realized, okay, he doesn't do church like me. This is different. And I never really fully understood it. I mean, on our little base, our base was pretty tiny. It was a mile square, Sangley Point. It's not even there anymore. They close it. And well, when we left, actually, they were closing the base. So, <clears throat> but our base was small enough that we didn't. We had a chaplain that did both the Catholic and the Protestant service. And so, when you did a Protestant service, that was for everybody. And so, we would go to the church service, and um, then they would change it over for the mass later. And there were times where, I, as a kid, I was part of the little group. We would sing like. They had a little kids choir occasionally, and then we would sing for the Catholic mass too. And I remember standing there like, oh, this is what Billy's doing. It's totally different than my church. Then when we really wanted church, we would go off base to a Filipino church 
And that was church. Now, that would last two, three hours, which as a kid, that got a little long. But that was a totally different experience. Then I remember one day, we were getting ready to go to a, a Good Friday service. And I may have told you this story before, because it was so, it, it so stuck in my mind what happened. Because remember, we had that little compound, and there was a big gate, and they always had a guard at the gate. And it was Good Friday. And I remember we started to drive out, and the guy at the gate's like going like this, like, you can't leave today. And I remember my dad got out and he came back in and he said, we can't drive out in the streets today. And I remember my mom saying, why? And he says, it's literally completely crowded with people. So I had no idea. You know, I'm just a kid. So what we did is my, my parents are going back and forth and we only lived a mile from base. So they said, well, let's just walk to the base. It's no big deal. So we started walking. My sister's a year older. So um, my dad's got her hand and my mom's got my hand. And as we walked out and we got on the street, it, it's one of those situations where it was so crowded. And I'd been in those before. That was no big deal. Didn't bother me at all. But you're just kind of weaving through crowds of people. You know, when you're a little kid, it's all you see is it's like you're in a forest of people. But then I remember seeing through occasionally, you know how the crowds are. And occasionally you get like a, a, a spot where I could see out in the street. And what I saw I did one of those things, you know, you guys that have little kids, you know how annoying it is when you're walking and they stop. And you're like, oh, come on, what are you doing? And they, my mom's kind of dragging me like, come on, keep walking, keep walking. You don't want to lose you. And, and I was just fixated because what I saw was, I remember, I remember exactly what I saw. It was a really older lady. She was on her knees. She was going that way. It's just in my mind. We're going this way. She's going that way. She's on her knees. I couldn't do it. I, I could never do it. I couldn't do it today for sure. She's got her hands up, and she's crawling, walking on her knees. And I, I kept telling my mom, what, why is she doing that? Why, my mom's like, doing what? Come on. You know how it is, right? Your kid's just babbling, and you have no idea what the kid saw. And like, There's a lady on her knees, and I had no idea what that was. And I would get these other glimpses, and I saw people doing similar things in the street. It wasn't until years later I found out what was happening. In that part of the Philippines, what they do, or in this town, and I guess it's reenacted in a lot of places there, they are doing penance. They're reenacting Good Friday. Some people literally go that way, and they get crucified, and they, they crawl all the way. Some of them, you know, their knees are all bloody. It's insane to me. People do church different. Now, would you ask one of those people if they're a Christian? I'm sure they would say yes. And were we Christians? Yes. And I've seen other things too. I mean, fast forward many years, I took a group of students to, to uh, and we ended up in Siberia. We went to Moscow and then we went to Siberia, Russia in 92. So soon after the wall had fallen and, and um, the Soviet Union had broken apart. And when we got there, um, I assembly got a youth pastor and I had assembly got youth group and there were three churches with us. So four of us, one was from Argentina and then two from the South and then us. It was really comical. You will appreciate that. I hope, but the Southerners, some of their Southern accents were so thick that we would have to interpret for the Southerners to the, the Russian interpreters because they couldn't understand. Um, they're like, anyway, it was comical to us. Like, we could hardly understand them. Sometimes their, their accent was so thick. While we were there, though, I was just asking, so why aren't there any Assembly of God churches? And they said, in Russia, there's three churches. There's Baptist, there's Greek Orthodox, and Pentecostal. And that's it. All Pentecostals, all other evangelical like churches would be Baptist and then Catholic, or Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. And that's it. 
It was really different. And yet we were one in Christ, but it was really different. Been to a lot of other countries and worshiped right alongside other Christians. I had this experience in college where I had a a class that was a comparative religions class. And what we had to do in the class was we had to spend a month with a different faith. And uh, one of the ones that was most intriguing to me is is, um, I spent a time with a Greek Orthodox priest. And I was really, I, I was grateful that he would even talk to me. I mean, at first I didn't understand much about him, but as we talked, he, he kept saying things that, that really had to do with Catholicism, and I would tell him, well, we're not Catholic. We're, I'm Protestant, and I would try to describe the difference. And at one point, he took me into their cathedral, and uh, he said, look up, and what do you see? And I don't know if you've ever been into a Greek Orthodox church. They're, they're very ornate, gorgeous. And I remember looking up, and there was all these these pictures and it looked like heaven and it looked like clouds and it looked like sky and all these things. And I, I said to him, um, I said, it looks like heaven. And he said, you're close. And he said, what it looks like is the resurrection because we celebrate the resurrection. You celebrate death. I said, wait, what, what are you talking about? And he goes, you have Jesus hanging on the cross all over your church. And I said, no, that would, no, <laughs> said, no, we, we don't actually have a lot of that at all. And, um, and so I was trying to explain to him again, and he said this to me. He says, he goes, you keep telling me you're different. He goes, what you are, are the, is the opposite side of the wrong coin. <laughs> I remember just looking at him and thinking, wow. So basically what he was saying is because we, we as, as, as evangelical Protestant Christians, we protested and separated from Catholicism, which had separated from Eastern Orthodox, you know, centuries before. We were just the opposite side of being wrong. And I remember walking out of there and thinking, we have so much in common, but he doesn't see it. He can't see it because of the history. And, and we are different. We celebrate different. I mean, the way they do, I, I went to a few of their services and it was phenomenal and You know, as you sit through it, it's so different than what we do. But really, it's the same. It's similar. I mean, they sing praises. They read scripture. They have a sermon. They they celebrate the Lord's communion. So much of it's the same, but so much of it's so different. And as I was talking to him, I remember walking out of there and thinking, we celebrate. Someday, we're going to be in heaven together, he and I. (laughs) And I don't know what I'll say to him. Maybe I'll hand him a coin. I don't know. But, but. What does a Christian really look like then? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, what should a Christian look like? I mean, can you, well, let me ask you this. Can you be good and not be a Christian? I think you can. I think the problem, the only problem really is how you define good. The only difference is what would be good? Is it, is it your definition of good or my definition or culture's definition? And if so, which part of culture because they define good differently. And what ends up being good? Is your good something that's good for everybody or just good for your group or what's good? If there's no standard by which to judge that, that's where we have as Christians, we do have a standard, something that we judge everything. Now, you can find a lot of criticisms of Christianity. You don't have to look very far at all. I mean, the Internet's full of it. You see it everywhere. 
And there's a lot out there to judge. I'm not even denying that. But you can always find somebody to judge against Christians. I mean, there's plenty of judgy judges judging a lot. We see that. But what are they basing their judgment on? That's what I keep coming back to. Because if you're judging it based on the rules of a God you don't believe in, then what are you? It's just your opinion then. And I'm not sure how fair that is. Or if you've just cherry-picked rules of a God you don't believe in, I don't know. There's a lot to judge. I mean, you think about it. There's, there's a lot. I mean, there's marriages that aren't perfect. There's Christian kids that aren't perfect and lives that aren't perfect and messy and hypocrites. Failures. I mean, that's not untrue. But let, me, let me just ask you. I heard this example. I thought it was awesome. Um, I had piano lessons as a kid. Anybody else have piano lessons as a kid? I did really good with um, the music theory part, and um, I was a really good sight reader. In fact, I'll never forget when I was, <laughs> my teacher one day said, so are you going to sight read every lesson when you walk in here? And I was looking at her like, she goes, yeah, I know. Like, she goes, you're good at it. She goes, but if you never practice, you'll never be a piano player. So I was really good at that. In fact, I can still, I'm really good at playing scales. A lot of useless things. Scales. In fact, I can do it with both hands. Anybody play piano? You know what I'm talking about? I, I'm good at chording. I mean, I can do all the inversions and all that. But if I were to stand before you and say, you want to hear me play Beethoven? Like his fifth symphony, that first movement. You know that one, right? Right? Bum, 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 bum. You know how cool that is, right? You could all probably hum some of it. But if I went over the piano right now, I thought about maybe talking to Nick and seeing if he let me try it. I actually can play that opener, but that's about it. But here's the thing. If I were to play it, it would sound so hollow and thin. And if I were to play it, you would maybe recognize a little bit in the beginning. And then afterward, you would think it was horrible. And you'd be right. But let me ask you, whose fault would that be? Would you step back and say, Beethoven's not a real composer. I mean, he, he really didn't know what he was doing. Would you say that? Would you say that Beethoven uh, couldn't, couldn't, uh, couldn't uh, write music? No. Would you blame my piano teacher? No. Who would you blame? Me. And you'd be right. Because I haven't put the work in to learn how to do it properly, and I haven't practiced to play it consistently in the right way. And if I didn't play it quite up to what the composer intended, it wouldn't be his fault, it would be my fault. So anytime somebody points at a Christianity and says, Christianity's full of hypocrites, what they're missing is the fact that it is true because humans are hypocrites. And because humans are Christians, we're hypocrites sometimes. And the fact is, you can't blame the, the creator, the composer of the faith, because a, a, a practitioner of the faith doesn't practice it right. At best, what you can do is say, the standard of the Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is this. And if you go online, which I did a lot yesterday just because I enjoy that and I'm weird, and heard a lot of different, um, different versions of it, but every single one of them was true to the composer's intent. Everyone. And not one time did I stop and think, man, that composer's horrible because the people performing it were horrible. 
Now, granted, I didn't hear any horrible performances. But when I look and see Christians who aren't living up to Christ's standard, I don't blame Christ because I know what it is. It's humanity. And you might wonder and you might think, why does God use so many fails, failures as, as Christians? And I've said this before, but that's all he has to work with, guys. We are it. And none of us are going to completely live up to his standard. As much as we should, we're not. And the fact is, if we're not, it's the same as playing piano. Why not? Because we're not really practicing it right. We're not doing and putting the time in. There's an old saying that somebody heard a concert pianist and then came up later and said, man, I'd give my life to play like that. And what did the pianist say? Really? Because I did. He did. He gave his life to play like that. And if we're not giving our lives to, to live up to the Christian ideal, it's really us not him. You know, I think about this, though, because people do have a lot of opinions about what Christianity should be like. And I don't blame them because that's how it works. But I want to ask the question again, what's their standard? What standard are they comparing all that to? And, and again, if it's just culture, then really it comes down to and becomes just an opinion. Because there is a standard. There is a standard. And we know what the standard is, and there's only one standard, and really it comes down to it's the word itself. And the fact is, if we're not putting the work in, if we're not spending the time like you might have to do with the music and playing your scales and playing your inversions and working through that on a daily basis, you will never achieve in Christ what he intends for you to achieve. On the other hand, the more time you spend with him, that's why we're doing this Bible reading thing as a, as a group, as a church. And believe me, I'm fascinated by your insights. You know, you don't have to share things. I know I've talked to people who are like, it's really comical. I love it because they'll say like, I'm reading it. I'm just not saying anything in case you're wondering. Like I didn't, it didn't cross my mind. I'm glad you were reading it. You don't have to say anything. But when people do, oh, it's fascinating. I love what, what you guys are, are finding and seeing in it because it just expands all of our knowledge base on it. But as you're reading through it, as you're reading it and digesting it and wondering about it and asking questions and applying it to your life, you are becoming more and more and more like Christ. More, if, you, if I could use this example, as a symphony musician that would be qualified to sit and play Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. But studies show, and it's, it's crazy how consistent this is, that only about 46% of people who claim to be Christians... These aren't just nominal, but actual Christians go to church all the time, actually read their Bible in a week. It's crazy. It's crazy because if you're going to live for Christ, you need to know what he said. I did something just, this is just for fun, because if you're a geek like me, you do this kind of thing. I got to thinking, what did Jesus say would be required of Christianity? What did he want to, us to do? And so I thought, well, there's so many things, but if you took just the Sermon on the Mount... And what I did is I read this through the Sermon on the Mount in both, well, there's, there's the version in, in Matthew and then the version in Luke, but I took the Matthew version. And what I did is I took out of that, summarized each one of the things he said a Christian would be like. Here's what he said. A Christian is people who realize their need for God, people who are humble, people who are hungry for justice, people who are merciful, people who are pure of heart, people who work for peace, people who are persecuted for doing right, people who are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, people who do good deeds that shine out for all to see, people who are law followers, who are not angry, who are peacemakers, who are faithful in their marriage, who are true to their word, who are loving toward enemies. In part of it, he said, you are to be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. 
People who are generous, people who are prayerful, people who are forgiving, people who are fasting, people who are giving again, people who are trusting God and not worrying, people who are persistent in prayer, and then the golden rule, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. It's the essence of all that's taught in the Law and the Prophets. And then he finished it by saying, you have to be doers of these words, not just hearers. Does it sound like a Christian? It did, didn't it? Didn't it sound like someone who is a Christ follower? Didn't it sound like somebody who has a standard to live by that is something that everybody in the world, if we actually live that, they would step back and say, wow, that is different. We need to be living that way. It sounds about right to me. And it's a high standard. It's a very, very high standard. And then as I was studying even more, I was looking through and I was thinking about the fact that he calls us to this high standard, but he doesn't tell us to follow the standard without counting the cost. He actually tells us, consider what it costs to live like this. You need to think this through. He literally does that. Not only does he say that, he says, but if you are going to follow me, you have to follow me completely. No halfway. He calls for complete, uh, complete, complete following. That kind of sounds like a contradiction. It's free, but it costs you? Yeah, actually it's free, but it costs you everything. Does that sound like a contradiction? Suppose, I heard these examples and I thought they were awesome. Suppose I wanted to climb Mount Everest. Now, I can be honest with you, I have no desire to do that, none. I have a lot of desires to do certain things, climb certain things, see things, a lot, honestly, a lot. Not that one. That one's never interested me at all. And I, I'm not sure why, actually. It just, it's never interested me. But think about this for a second. That, that is the tallest mountain in the world, 29,000 feet. It's incredible. No, I mean, it's the tallest mountain in the world. But suppose I did want to do it. Do you know what the average cost is to, to do an ascent on Everest, including everything, the equipment, the guides, and all that? The cost ranges, but, but roughly about $70,000. So that's not something I would do. I mean, I wouldn't even think about it. But then the cost alone, I'd be like, I could find a lot of other uses for 70 grand. But if I wanted to do it and I had expressed my desire and money was an issue, let's just imagine for a minute, what if somebody who did have the money said to me, you know what, I'll cover the cost completely, free of charge, something you want to do, I'll pay for the whole thing, everything. I'll pay for the training, because you've got to physically train for this. I'll pay for all the equipment. There's a lot of very specialized equipment that you would only use in that kind of alpine hiking. I mean, you couldn't use it in any other time. It'd be like, this is it, unless you're going to climb some other you know, peaks in the 20,000s. This is it. But I'll pay for all of that. I'll even pay for your guide, your Sherpa, the trip over, the flight, everything. Food, all the specialized food. I'll pay for every single thing. So would that trip be free? Would it be free to me? It would be free to me at that point because somebody else was paying the cost. Do you follow? Someone would pay for it. But here's the thing you have to understand. Even if they paid for it and I accepted it, then what I would be doing would be committing myself to training, they say, at least six months to a year for this kind of thing. I would also need to commit myself to, to not only do that, but to go on the trip, it's a very difficult thing to do. And it could literally cost me my entire life. In the, in the time since uh, Sir Edmund Hillary climbed that mountain, there's 300 people, 305 people who've died on the mountain. 
most of them are still there on the mountain. I know it sounds weird, doesn't it? When I was researching this, <laughs> kind of creepy, some of their bodies they actually use as guideposts for the ascent. And there's a picture online of this guy who had green boots, and they call him the green boot man. It's, it's crazy. It could be free to me, yet cost me my whole life. I look at that and I think, I don't want to do that. But I would have to consider that cost in accepting the free gift. It would be free, but very costly. My first roommate in college was a private pilot. He'd gotten his license. I don't know what age you can get it at, but he had it. And... uh, to keep his license up, he would fly quite a bit. And he was always asking, he, to fly is expensive. It's, a, it's an expensive hobby unless, you know, you're getting paid to do it, which he was not. So he had to pay for the rental of the plane and pay for the fuel. So what he would do a lot of times is walk around the dorm and he would try to get people to chip in to, for a, a ride on his plane. All right. But he was a bit of a risk taker kind of kid. So most people didn't want to fly with him. Does it make sense? But what if he offered me a free ride, a free ride on his plane? I remember one time for Thanksgiving, a bunch of the guys, he, he lived up in Sacramento. Some of the guys lived around that area, and they were planning this big trip. And enough guys had wanted to go that he had to bump into a different size plane. So he had to get qualified on that plane. So he's getting desperate because he had this thing working, and they were gonna, it was gonna, his trip was going to be free. And... So he was kind of desperate to make it all work out. And so he came to me one day and he goes, look, I, I need someone to ride with me. I, I'll cover it. You can just ride for free. And so I had a dilemma. Can you figure my dilemma? He was my roommate. I had always found a way to decline riding with him. And now I was stuck. Because he did one of those things people do, which is kind of rude. But he's like, hey, what are you doing this weekend? And I already said nothing. You always want to say why are you asking? But I didn't. He invited me to go. If I accepted his free offer, I want you to hear the words I'm choosing here. I was committing my life to him. If he flew successfully, my life would be safe. If something happened, I would have given my life for a choice. If he crashes, I die. Instantly, when I accepted his free offer, I would have been totally committed to him. Do you guys see what I'm saying here? And yet, what Christ is offering us is far more than a free plane ride. And even more than life, in a sense, what he's offering us is life eternal. He's offering us a different life, but it's not completely free. It's free, but it requires everything. And I know for some of you, you're... uh, You're probably sitting here and you're thinking, wait a minute, I didn't realize that's what he was asking. Yes, he is. And if you've missed that up till this point, I apologize for every pastor you've ever heard preach. But the fact is, it's free, but it's not like you get to choose which parts. It's either you're on the plane or not. I couldn't tell him, my my roommate, I couldn't say, how about we just, like, I just with you until before you take off. I couldn't do that. I couldn't tell him, like, I'll help. I'll be there with you as you taxi around the runway. That wasn't good enough. I couldn't tell him, hey, I'll help you check out the plane, and I'll be on the ground. I'll wave at you. And 
That's not what he was asking. What he was asking is get in the plane and fly. In the end, just to finish the story, didn't have to go. He didn't have to fly. Didn't happen. (laughs) Jesus offers us water of life to everyone who thirsts. But you need to understand it's a free gift, but it will cost you everything. And to be fair, you're bought with a price. He paid the ultimate price for you. When he's asking you to follow, it's no small thing. You may look at it and think, wait a minute, that's a high price. Yes, it is. That's why he says count the cost. But it is a big thing. And what he's asking for you to do is to literally turn everything over to him. Nothing shared. In Luke chapter 14, this is in the height of Jesus' popularity. And if you follow Christ's life and his ministry, he starts out small. The popularity swells to this huge amount. And then he challenges people and they start dropping away. In chapter 14, verse 25, it says a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and he said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must listen to what he says. By comparison, hate everyone else. Your father, your mother, your wife, your children, brothers, sisters, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if that wasn't enough, he said, and if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Can you imagine that scene? Because up until this point, there wasn't much cost. It was kind of fun, actually. And if you were traveling with Jesus, you might get to see him embarrass the religious rulers. You might get to see him do some cool miracles. I mean, literally heal people. You might get to see him... Uh, not many of them, the crowd would have seen him walk on water, but you might get to see him turn loaves and fish into bread and feed all of everybody free food. Not much cost in that. And when he stopped and turned to the crowd and he said this to them, they had to count the cost. I want you to hear exactly what he said. Some people misunderstand this and misquote him. Intentionally or not, it doesn't matter, but they do. He said, you need to love me By comparison, by comparison, he wasn't fooled by the crowd. He was looking for authentic, sincere followers who would follow him no matter how tough it got, no matter how difficult, no matter how many times they were questioned. He was looking for sincerity and authenticity. He knew people were going to fall away when they got tough, when they got tested, when Jesus was arrested. How many fell away? He goes on, he says, but don't begin until you count the cost. For who had been construction, build, begin to construction on a building without first calculating the cost to see if there was any money left to finish it? He wants you to count the cost. And he uses not only that example, but another. And you know how it is. I mean, if you're wanting to build something, and maybe you've done this before on a smaller scale where you thought, oh, I'm just going to build a shed in the back and it won't be that much. And then you go buy the wood or the foundation parts and that, and you think, yeah, that's more than I thought, but I, I'm, I'm already into it. You've already dug the footings, and so you pour it, and you get it done, and then you go see the price of lumber, and you're like, whoa, goodness gracious. Maybe I could just go with smaller boards, and you've literally done what Jesus was saying don't do. You did not figure the cost, so you, do not what you, ask, you don't understand what you've put yourself into. He uses another example of a king going to war, and then he finds out that his army is considerably smaller than the other, so he decides, I'm going to make peace instead of fight and lose all my people. 
He wants you to consider the cost. But it doesn't end there. Then he talks about the cost of discipleship. In chapter 14, verse 33, he says, So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. He'd already said we need to, by comparison, seem like we hate our families. Now he's saying you have to give up everything you own. Let me ask you a question. Do you already think it's too hard? Or at least what he's saying here is too hard or too much? Did you know Christianity was that demanding and that difficult? Because mostly what we see is pretty easy Christianity. And for our, most of our lives, it's been pretty easy to be a Christian. For the most part, Christians have been pretty popular. But that's changing. And the world right now is, doesn't like Christianity. And it doesn't like Christians. Was Jesus just being hyperbolic? Was he just exaggerating to make a point here? Did he really mean what he said? Because he does use hyperbole. He's a very eloquent speaker, and hyperbole is a great tool. You push people really hard and say what you think. It's over the top. Let me say it this way. What are you holding on to tighter than Jesus right now? Because when he says he, you have to give up, be willing to give up everything you own, simple question. What are you holding on to tighter than Jesus? My guess is that thing's more important to you than him. It's easy to go with the world current. Stick your finger up. You guys know that, right? You can feel where the breeze is coming from. I'm going to go that way now. Going with the flow. G.K. Chesterton, I've been reading him a lot lately. I love him. He's just, he's really interesting guy. He lived in the, in the uh, 19th century. He was, a, he was a, actually a friend of C.S. Lewis. As part of the reason C.S. Lewis considered Christianity was this guy. He said this, dead things go with the flow. Live things swim upstream. Jesus then uses an illustration about salt. In verse 34, salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. This was rough. Jesus has this huge crowd following him, and I would guess that most speakers, and I know that the religious rulers were jealous of the crowds, and most people think having a crowd means success and it's all good. But Jesus saw right through that and he felt like this. If the crowd's not sincere and following for the right reasons, then they don't need to be following. That's why he was saying that to them. But he also wanted them to truly consider the cost. Do you really believe this? Is it real to you? And if it is, that means you're going to be willing to with, withstand hardship that will come. <clears throat> this is interesting to me too. A lot of times, as preachers, speakers, uh, politicians do this too, we use emotional arguments to draw people in. And unfortunately, sometimes people make decisions when they're the height of emotion is there. That's not what Jesus is doing here. In fact, if anything, what he's doing is popping their bubble and he's exploding whatever emotional attachment they had. And he says, I want you to use your head right now and I want you to realize that you need to consider the cost. And do you really believe this? And is it really real? Not just in here, but also in here. He does that in a, in a really profound way. He's saying, I want you to make a rational decision about your discipleship. Consider this cost. And if you're going to no live tell, if you're going to live, then live it. Now, I don't know about you, but I bet some of you right now, your reaction is actually emotional. You're 
and I don't be offended. I'm just, I'm just knowing what I feel. You might be hearing this and thinking, you know, that is a little over the top. That kind of hurts my feelings. That he, and I don't mean, I'm not minimizing that. I'm serious. Do you think really that Jesus is asking too much? Or do you think maybe, Pastor Dennis, you're, you're, being a, you're portraying it a little harder than he meant it. Actually, I don't know if I could do that, to be honest with you. I don't know that I could. Does he really mean that we should love him so much that every other relationship by comparison looks like hate? Think about who you love for a minute. Do you love Jesus that much more? Do you love him that much more? Is he number one without anything else in a close second? If he was just a normal human being asking for that kind of devotion, that would be weird. That would be cultish. But he's not. If he wasn't perfect, then he wouldn't have any right to ask that. If he didn't literally die for you, then he couldn't ask for that devotion. But he did. He said that you need to be willing to give up everything. That means nothing is more important than him. Let me break that word in half. No thing is more important. I don't know what you're thinking about right now when I say that. Like what's more important? Some of you might be thinking about money. And, and that would apply. I don't know that that's what he was talking about. You might be thinking about, I don't know, material, other material things, a car or something or some other toy or a possession you have or maybe a person or a relationship or a job or some prestige you have or a dream. Or When I wrote about the dream thing, I, I thought about this. When I was in uh, Bible college, our, my senior year, right as we were getting ready to graduate, there was a group of us seniors who had been involved a lot in leadership and ASB and led worship and chapels and done all this. And a bunch of us uh, got together at somebody's, somebody's parents had a house with a big pool and it was kind of an end of the year thing. And we're at the end, we're kind of sitting around and there was this girl who was, she was kind of part of the group, but she uh, already had like a, a recording career going, which was, I mean, that was cool. And I didn't know her really well, but um, we were sitting around there talking about the future and somebody was asking her, like everybody was talking and then they were asking her, so what's, what's next for you? What are you going to do? And she, she said, um, she literally had her guitar, remember this, and she just sang, led us in a worship chorus. And it was one of those deals where, I know, we have people like this in this church, but when they sing, it's almost like I'd rather listen to them than mess it up by me singing with them. It's kind of like that. And uh, she said, um, God's called me to go to the mission field and uh, she was not a Bible major or anything like that. And uh, somebody's like, and sing? And she's like, no, I think this is over. And um, I remember sitting there like, what? <laughs> and then somebody literally said the words, isn't that your dream? And she said it was. But I realized I had put that before God, and that's not what he wants me to do. And um, I lost track of her. I don't... I don't even know what has happened with her, but I just remember sitting there realizing um, she's like, at that moment in her life, the best singer I knew personally and super talented, and she was willing to give that up for God. And I just felt so convicted, like, I don't even know if I'm a Christian next to her. Because <laughs> she was giving up something that we all admired and a dream and 
I'm not saying that God takes away all your dreams. I'm just saying that her devotion was way deeper than mine. And I thought I was doing good. So what is he really asking? Is he asking for you to throw away your dreams and hate your mom and dad? Is that really what he's saying? What is he saying to us? What he's talking about is your level of devotion to those things have to be second to your level of devotion to him. He gives you dreams. He gives you family. He wants those things. Those things are huge, important to him. But what's more important to him is your devotion to him. And the question today is, where is that? If you're going to live for Christ, yes, you can step back and criticize someone, some Christian's Christian life. We, we, we all do it at some level, and there's plenty of room for that. But that's not even the point today. My point is, how devoted to him are you? And if you're devoted to him, then everything else will line up. Everything else will be right. If you're devoted to him the way you should be, everything else will be right. It just will. If your devotion to him is above everything else, then none of the rest, all the rest of it will, it's not that it doesn't matter. I almost said it doesn't matter. It's not that it doesn't matter. It's just it will work. Is there love, joy, and peace in Christianity? Yes, a thousand times yes, there is. But it sometimes is in different things than what you think because we start to get the things out of order. And if it's not like this and like this and like this and my family, my job, my prestige, my, my ideas, my this, my this, my this. And what he's saying is, your order is wrong just because I'm not here. I need to be here. And then he will help you sort the rest of that out. That's what he does. Because he also said this, reminder, if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Cross carrying is not something we line up to do. Usually we avoid that. We cheer other people doing that. We don't want to do it. And what he means by that is sacrifice, that there's times where you're going to have some sacrifice. And he also said this in John 16, 33, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart because I've overcome the world. We like the first line, that's not the rest of that. It will not be, again, bunnies and whatever is soft and furry. Life gets difficult. And in 1 Peter, Peter said it this way, if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right. Trust your lives to God who created you, for he will never fail you. Pastor Nick, if you could join me here. We're going to open the altars for people who need prayer after service, but before we get to that, I don't know how you define the Christian life before today, but I hope your definition of it after is different because it's sacrifice and devotion and selflessness. It's putting other people first and serving greater good of others before our own. It's loving Jesus more than anything else, more than yourself, more than things, more than people. All those things are important, but it's loving him more. Does he reward you? Yes, yes. He's our supply. He's our nourishment. He, he rewards our soul. He gives us peace that passes all understanding. And bypassing all understanding doesn't make sense in circumstances that are not ideal or not the way we thought they should be. He gives peace that nobody could ever give. But you will only understand that when you turn it all over to him. If you don't, it still doesn't make sense. And if it doesn't make sense to you even now, that's God and you working it out. 
It will only make sense once you trust him and live for him alone. Then it will make sense. Going back to G.K. Chesterton, he also said this. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Let me read that again. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. So don't you shut your eyes with me for a minute. I know it sounds a bit cliche. I just do that because it gives you a sense of privacy in a room full of people. And even if you're watching online, sometimes it helps just to help you think about your thoughts rather than anything else that's running around in your mind. Are you living the Christian life today? Are you living it? And the next question is quick alongside that is, do you want to? You may now be like, I'm not sure. Yes, yes, please. I hope you do. Because the thing is, the alternative is it's not what you want. But ultimately, that's the choice God gives you today. When Jesus turned to the crowd, I guarantee you, he didn't want any of them to leave. But they left because they chose not to follow They didn't want to follow him that close. They were comfortable following him at a distance, but they didn't want to follow him that close. At least not as close as it might be that it would cost them something. You may be in that dilemma right now this morning where you're thinking, I'm willing to follow him. I believe in all the things he said. I think he's great, but I don't want to cost me anything. I like my life the way it is. I'm comfortable. He calls you to a deeper walk this morning. You might be sitting here and you're thinking, wait a minute, that's, that didn't sound like you. You didn't make Christianity super attractive today, Pastor Dennis. I didn't think that's my job today. I want people to know the truth. But you may be sitting here today and you've thought, you know what, I haven't actually followed him at all. At least not the way you've described it today. And, and I want to. I, maybe inside you're feeling kind of a, a burning in your heart or maybe a Maybe just an anxiousness like, yes, God is calling you today. Because here's what happens. The Holy Spirit, not only does he speak through prophecies like we had earlier today in the service, but the Holy Spirit also speaks to each and every one of us all the time. The, The question is, are you listening? And some of you today, because you've been here and you've heard the the word of the Lord today, he will speak to your heart and he's telling you, yes, you need to choose to follow. Will it be easy? No. Will it be wonderful? Yes. Yes, it will be. So my question is simple this morning. Maybe you're here and you haven't followed him. At least not like I've described it. But you want to do that today. If that is you, I just want you to raise your hand and we will pray with you this morning. Anybody at all, if you want to follow him today, you have not been, but you want to, raise your hand and we'll pray with you. I do see the hand. I appreciate it. Anybody else? My second question is for those of you who are Christ followers. You feel like you have been following him. But you realize, you know what? I really could and should follow him more. And there are things that I put in front of him. And if he's really asking for that level of devotion, then I need to change my priorities and rearrange my life to fit that and if that is you I just want you to raise your hand and I'll pray with you there are hands all over the place you can consider mine raised as well would you all stand with me please
we're going to have a time of prayer. For those of you who would pray with us, spouses, board, staff, those of you on the prayer team, we want to pray. If you want prayer to maybe walk this life more clearly, if you need prayer for anything else, healing, maybe stand in for somebody who's in need, then we want to pray with you. If you would come now, and then I'm going to close the service for, for the rest of us. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would take our life and make it what it needs to be. God, we realize that we can't do this without you. We need you. We need you at every level of our lives from morning till night, through the day, in our hearts, in our minds, in our thoughts, in our attitudes. God, we want to live for you like we have never lived for you before. God, we truly want our love for you when compared with our love to other people to look like love and hate. We want our devotion to you to be that much. God, we ask for that in the name of Jesus. Help us with all of our shortcomings. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you need prayer, come on. God bless you. Thank you for being here today.